This is Doc with Doc and Lefty. You're joining us tonight, every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. Lefty is in the studio, and more importantly, he's on time. How you doing? I'm great. How are you? How was your gig on Saturday? It was. It went pretty well, I got to say. I, uh, For not having uh, performed in, in several months, I felt like I was able to um, kind of maintain my voice, as it were, for uh, a significant period of time. Because usually, you know, when you're not, when you, the, 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 the voice is just like every other uh, aspect of your body. If you don't use it, you, you get, it gets worn out and you're not in shape. And I felt like it held up. So, uh, and the people who were there had a good time. Well, good. I, I wanted to come. I uh, just have, was taken with this nasty thing that's floating around. Mm-hmm. It's been going on lately. So you look, you look better today. Well, good, good. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy with that. Well, let's get right to the show. One of the most exciting things has been ha- that has happened in local politics since uh, Brandstad came out of nowhere and beat uh, Bob Vanderplatz for the nomination, governor gubernatorial nomination, is this revolt that's going on with the uh, old school conservatives versus the new uh, Libertarian Party. And last Tuesday during our show is when that first started acting up. Mm-hmm. So uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Libertarians very cleverly have placed themselves in in strong positions of leadership uh, at the county and state level. Um, our uh, The Iowa GOP is, is headed up by A.J. Spiker, who is a committed uh, Paulophile, or I don't know, what do they call themselves, Paulus? I, boy, I, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you either. Um, anyway, Ron Paul supporters, for lack of a better term, um, they, uh, hey, Frank, you know what they call themselves, Ron Paul people? I have no idea. Paulus. Anyway. The Paulines. The, the, the Paulines. Isn't that, isn't, that what, isn't that what the early Christians, they were, the That's Paul, right. isn't that what they are called? You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Anyway, um, A.J. Spiker, Steve Beerfeld, um, oh, I forgot who the actual finance guy is. Uh, they're all Ron Paul supporters. Uh, um, in fact, they're such Ron Paul supporters that uh, they kicked out the uh, Polk County GOP people who are conservative, who are the old school conservatives, and uh, made them leave uh, the RPI headquarters and go someplace else, um, which created a, a great deal of ill ill will, and. Um, last election cycle, they managed to get a lot of their people into place for Ron Paul's run. Now these very same people are coming up for election. Um, Not to tout another person's website, but the Iowa Republican has uh, the video from that, from uh, I believe it was Hardin County, uh, where they... um, about as nicely as you can throw somebody out, threw out Steve Beerfield, Beerfelt out of the uh, meeting um, and rejected his, uh, didn't want, to, want him to speak, and then they elected a, a, an old guard conservative. The very same thing happened over, I think it was either Sunday or yesterday up in Story County. Uh, Dane Nielsen was elected uh, uh, the chairman in Story County. And pretty much the same thing happened. Uh, they had three Ron Paul files running, and uh, uh, Dane happened to, to win. I think what is happening is the final schism 
between the Libertarian Party, which is very strictly financial with, you know, very little, uh, they want very little regulation of social issues. Right. Um, versus the conservatives, particularly the Christian conservatives, who, you know, want to fight for, you know, the right to life and want, want to fight for traditional marriage. Um, I think this is uh, the, the final schism. They're, uh, the governor and AJ have been going at it over the straw poll. I think that's just one of the things that uh, um, it's, it's like being married to somebody. You know, you talk about, you know, how many dishes are in the sink, but really that's not the issue. The issue goes much deeper. I think that's the issue. So is it are you positing that that we're going to actually see something come of this? Because people have kind of been predicting the the libertarian rise um for a while at this I guess we would say eight years since Ron Paul first kind of burst onto the the national scene. You know, I think that he had that strong following in Texas where everyone is you know, a little, and I don't think that any people from Texas who are listening to that are going to be offended when I say this. You got y'all's politics is just a little bit different down there in Texas. You know, just like Absolutely. it's a little bit different in New Hampshire, just like it's a little bit different everywhere else. But in Texas, you know, you got your your this really strong sense of uh, of leave me the f alone, and yes. and that's just and so he did really well down there. And I think that that uh, that message really played out. And here's what's interesting to me, Ron Paul. Gained a lot of notoriety in 2010, or not 2010, good grief. Good grief, you're going to let me go on and on about 2010, 2008. He, got, he gained a lot of notoriety back in 2008. Well, I'm setting you up for the POW. I haven't gotten a POW in at least two months. <laughs> when uh, you know, he kind of burst on the scene and gained a lot of popularity in 2008, after eight years of some of the most conservative, um, I don't know, ruling elite that the country has had. Because even when Ronald Reagan was president, he saw to deal with the Democratic legislature. Yes. George Bush didn't necessarily have to do that very much. No, he had no, he, six, he had about six years of having complete control, and he got to swing the, the Supreme Court even more to the right than it already was. Um, and it wasn't until uh, 2006 when the Democrats kind of took uh, power back from him. And so it's it's kind of interesting to me that you had this eight years of a a really heavy, heavy-handed conservative presence in Washington. Then Ron Paul, who's a Republican, so on the conservative side, comes forward with something a little different, and it really took off. And so, do you think that? Are you trying to say that that um, that had been there for a while, like a, a kind of a cavity that was just sort of growing and growing? Or well, the, the Libertarian Party. Um, well, let's just go over it a little bit. The yeah. Libertarian Party are, you know, very fiscally conservative. Very fiscally conservative. Um, they really don't. They they want the government out of our pocketbooks and out of our bedrooms, and we they don't want us interfering with other places. That's just a brief rundown. Um, when I talk to Christian conservatives, they often accuse me of being a libertarian uh, because my ardor for you know banning gay marriage is not as strong as it should be. Mm -hmm. um, the there's been this schism for a while. He really started taking off when he started talk when when Ron Paul really took off uh, when he started talking about legalizing marijuana. That's when you really saw a surge in his his support. And these people are rabid. He had a rabid support before because mm -hmm. you know he was a he's a very straight shooter. 
Um, but he recruited about half of his about half of his um, uh, voting block when he said, you know, I support taxing, you know, marijuana, make it legal, tax it, make it a business. Um, well, rats, you know, that first ten minutes blew right by. It did. So we'll be back right after the break. We'll talk more about Ron Paul and, and uh, the schism in the uh, in the Republican Party. Because it actually goes deeper. Like I said earlier, it goes deeper. When we come back, we'll talk about the other issues that are going on in the Republican Party um, that uh, causes uh, this conflict. We'll be back in one minute. Thank you for tuning in Doc and Lefty on webcast1live.com. This is Doc with Doc and Lefty. Thanks for coming back after the break. Uh, we appreciate everybody's uh, viewing of the sponsors because they were, are what allows, allow us to uh, have this very nice studio our Doc and Lefty sign behind us, Yep, and uh, we're very appreciative. And, you know, the thing about this, and, and I don't know that we've necessarily kind of uh, sung these praises from the rooftops enough, but uh, Mac, J. Mike McCoy, who kind of got this thing off the ground and started, has really provided an alternative to commercial radio. Now, as a conservative, as the, as the token conservative in this duo here, uh, Doc doesn't want to hear me bash on on uh, on corporations so much, but I think that when media is sort of localized into the hands of maybe one or two entities, that's where you start to see not not necessarily a dilution in 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 a um, in the message, but really a sanitizing of viewpoints. And so having an alternative forum where we where uh, two guys from opposite sides of the political spectrum, but who are friends regardless can come in and kind of offer up a different take on the news of the day and the politics. I think that's really where Webcast One Live um, has done a great service to the community. And if we, if you want to call in and, and talk about it, that would be great. Our number is, I think, up on the screen. Or, or it should be. It could be. Um, and just let, you know, let us know what you're thinking about today with uh, the sort of the we've – we've been harping on the death of the Republican Party. Well – the severe flu of the Republican Party <laughs> they, for a few weeks at this they, point. They got a lot of SARS on them. But it's but it's it's bad and it's getting worse. It is, it is getting worse. Uh, one of the one of the fractures that has started a long time ago is the big tent versus purist. Right. And um, Steve Dace, who is a a remarkable radio man, who is uh, also broadcast through webcastonelive.com and who's radio program is exploding across the nation is one of the people who who really advocates for purity of the Republican Party. Um, he and I disagree on that. Um, here's the reason why. It's a simple numbers game. You need people to vote for you. And if you're too pure, it takes you out of the mainstream and marginalizes your party. Uh, Doug Gross, uh, I'll never forget, I went to a Republican breakfast. And Doug Gross got up there and started talking about, you know, we need to have a bigger tent. And when we have a bigger tent and we draw people in with issues that matter in, in a much broader sense, like the economy, jobs, um, welfare, when we start talking about those kind of things up front and expressing our ideas, we win. And after we win, that's when we have the best chance at getting people to convert over and go, well, you know, maybe my stance on abortion was wrong. Maybe my stance on gay marriage was wrong. And because you have more people on your on your side and in your tent, you're able to to make headway better. 
um, you know, the typical abortion debate in the Republican Party is we want to eliminate abortion, period. Well, I, so do I. I just advocate a different direction. I advocate taking it back a step at a time. You and I have agreed there are limits, you know, where limits should be in abortion. We've agreed at that, uh, you know, privately when we've talked. You can make agreements with Democrats, believe it or not, that are reasonable. And the problem is, is if you want to take it back all at one time, you alienate the very people you need to get it back. And if you come up and you immediately start talking about, hi, I'm going to eliminate, you know, I'm going to defend your right to marriage and I'm going to eliminate other people's right to marriage, all right? Whether or not they agree with you, let's say they do agree with you, they're going to step back and go, but hold on, I'm about ready to lose my house. So how are you talking about gay marriage and abortion going to help me keep my house? Are you going to help me provide more money? Are you going to reduce my taxes so I can keep my house? And that's the, and that's the schism. So when you lead with social issues, you have a tendency to lose the very people you need. Well, right, and well, that's I think that's that's pretty uh, um, pretty well uh, that's pretty well uh, pretty empirically founded. I guess the thing the thing about and I won't get into that. We're not talking about specifics um, at this point, but I think that what happens with a lot of folks when people come in and they're talking social issues, especially because you know you don't like you made the point earlier. You don't hear a lot of the social issue talk really from the the strict, committed libertarian side of the the Republican Party at this point. You're hearing a lot of um, isolationist, and that, that's kind of a dirty word, but that's really what it is. Um, isolationist foreign policy, uh, strict fiscal austerity, and a lot of different other things that uh, um, and and but just sort of a complete liberalization on social issues, and so. The and it's the the old guard or I guess the folks that brought the conservatives into power in the late 70s early 80s the more uh, religiously minded not to start trashing on religious folks here but they're the ones that come that come around and say we're we're going to defend your we're going to defend traditional marriage let's use that just as, as an example kind of um, to make to make the the conversation uh, easier to understand. We're going to defend your your uh, your right to have a traditional marriage. Well, I already have a traditional marriage, so you know you don't. I don't need my my marriage defended. Well, well, if you let the if you let other folks, if you let non-traditional couples marry, that's going to um, somehow it's going to normalize a behavior that's sinful. That's what you hear a lot. And I'm not and I'm not saying that to kind of cast aspersions on people that believe in sin. I'm just saying that's what you hear a lot from the other side. And you're going to, and so what they're saying is we can't let sin, what we interpret as sin or sinful lifestyle, be normalized in the culture. Well, good grief! I mean, are they, does that mean that they think that every soap opera should be illegal? Because See, soap operas have done a lot more to normalize sinful behavior, i.e., adultery, drug use, um, uh, uh, premarital sex. Well, Absolutely. more uh, and have done been doing it for longer. I mean, as and, the world turns been on the year since the fifties. Oh, and I and I agree, and especially MTV. One of the things you don't hear now: Barack Obama is committed to to abortion. He's committed to gay marriage. He's committed to um, um, you know increased welfare. Uh, and but you don't hear him lead with those subjects. You don't hear him get up on the news and go, you know what, I'm gonna. You know, I'm going to extend the right for a woman's abortion all the way up to the age of 15. You don't hear him say things like that. Because if he did, it would scare the people that go, holy cow, I don't think, you know, you should have a right to kill your kid. Well, reverse that scenario. 
People don't want to come up and go, well, hold on. What if I get raped? What if my daughter is, you know, uh, impregnated by her father? You know, what happens then? You're going to limit my choices in those points? Now, whether or not you agree with it, that's going to scare people. And that's going to particularly scare women. So you can't lead with social issues right off the bat. You know, just like that one uh, that one uh, 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 presentation we went to um, where you said, geez, it's very, where Herman Cain spoke. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, the, um, the first thing you said is, this is interesting, an entire night of Republicans talking about everything except jobs and the economy. I did. And that's the problem. That's yep. the problem. Well, and, but, and we'll get into this in the next segment, I think, because I'm still hearing a little bit of, I'm hearing a little bit from you, Doc, where you're saying some of the message is not palatable to some people, which is, I think, a, a big step for where conservatives need to go to really kind of go into the, uh, the desert, have their come to Jesus moment. But I'm still hearing a lot of, it's not the, it's not the, uh, it's the message. It's it's not the meaning. It's the message, and and how we and how we uh, we get it out. The communication, and this is this is going to be the sort of my opinion coming from the left. It's not the conservative delivery system that's the problem. The conservative message has a gigantic flaw. Has a gigantic flaw. That gigantic flaw being, it is not consistent with the way the uh, country is moving. With that note, we'll be right back. After a minute of uh, commercials, please, uh, we should call it uh, informational business. Yes. Informational business uh, remarks here for the next minute. Well, thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Doc and Lefty on webcast1live.com. This is Doc with Doc and Lefty. Today we're discussing uh, the schism uh, in, uh, in Republican politics currently. You know, there's nothing that brings about the worst behavior of people than losing. You know, you never hear a winning Super Bowl team pointing at their coach going, he sucks and needs to be fired. You always hear, you know, like the Jets, oh, well, you know, it's Tebow's fault. Well, this is what's going on with the Republican Party now. And the schism really lies along three different lines. Fiscal conservatives, which there are fiscal conservatives that have really no social agenda, believe it or not. The libertarians, which... Um, have a strong fiscal non-interference policy, uh, laissez-faire, basically, economics. And then you have the very Christian conservatives. And those schisms are all along those three lines. Um, now, Blake, before the, before the uh, break, indicated that it wasn't the way the message is delivered, like I believe, but the message itself. Do you want to expand on that? Well, I, I do, because... We've seen now, at, with time after time, uh, except in very safe districts like uh, like Steve King's district up in Northwest Iowa, or uh, the entire state of Oklahoma, for example. Yeah. You see, in these different in these different areas around the country, we've seen that the conservative message just isn't resonating the way that it has in the past. Now, I would argue that. The last time that a that a, a conservative really had the people behind him 100%, and it wasn't wholly based on, um, well, actually no, I'll I'll even take that back. It seems like the last two 
admittedly really conservative presidents, Ronald Reagan and and uh, and George W. Bush. George H. W. Is, we could throw him in there, but a lot of the Republicans kind of disavowed him after he didn't win his second term. So the two biggest conservative icons in the presidency, Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, had an external threat that they were able to motivate the country into falling in line yes. behind them. That's you had the Soviet Union in the 80s, and you had al-Qaeda and international terrorism uh, under the Bush administration. And it would be my my opinion coming from the left, and, you can, and I'm kind of setting up a, another discussion here, that the conservative message then gets sort of drowned out by this drumbeat of of threat and war and um and uh, and we we and well, security issues so that the people will uh, so that the 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 country falls in line and gets behind these presidents well but but, but you see Mike, I'm going to disagree with you completely. I I would hope one, so 100% on that one um the I agree that in order to stay in power you need to have something some kind of fear-based fear-mongering of some kind right but the difference between the Democrats and Republicans is the Democrats look at internal strife. They start fear-mongering about Social Security. Oh, Republicans are going to take your Social Security. They're going to start talking about, oh, they're going to take your rights away. You know, oh, they're going to, you know, eliminate abortion. Well, you know, be, simply because the Republicans had an actual problem on the outside, there was the Russian Empire. There was an attack on America, Right. Simply because these events actually did happen, there was something out there, I believe you do have to respond to that, unlike the Democrats who seem to go around and manufacture crises. 37 all the states, time. 37 Republican governors, I think is the, the number, maybe not that many, but a large chunk of uh, states run by Republican governors pass anti abortion legislation. I mean, that, and that's just that's on the record. You can no longer get an abortion in Mississippi because of the new rules down there. You can no longer get an abortion in North Dakota. You can, uh, there's been um, bills. So what's your, what's your point what about I'm saying, that? What I'm saying is you, just, you, you kind of just said that, oh, uh, the Democrats are manufacturing a crisis for, um, and then cited abortion rights as one of them. Well, Republican states are actually doing that. That's an actual real thing. Well, but, but, it's not a manufactured but, crisis at but, all. But my, but my previous statement really is, the the crises that the Republicans have been rallying around are crises exterior, right? That you said and were not, real and, and not manufactured. And, well, and because <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, is well, I'm I'm having a, a discussion with my very good friend Chris Butler about unions, mm -hmm. and she basically said, well, if you don't want to work in a union shop, go to the next shop. Well, that's to sound suspiciously like, well, if you don't, if you want to have an abortion and have the right to, you don't have to live in Mississippi. Go to California. You know, so do you have a problem saying that? It, if, you know. I don't think that people should be banished from the states of their birth just because of a public policy. But they're not being banished. They're, they're, they are. They have effectively, a effect, effectively, they are. Here's the issue. When it comes down to abortion specifically, there are people out there who are morally opposed to it who will never, ever have one. Any law restricting their right to have an abortion does not affect them at all because they would never have one anyway. It only affects the people who have because of their own upbringing, their own moral uh, uh, sort of soul-searching, their own very difficult... I mean, people think that, people think that all these women that, that want to get abortions just do it callously and for, with no regard for anything, and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, anecdotally, I've been with... Uh, um, I had a, a really close friend in Iowa City that had a second abortion for reasons that don't need to really discuss, and it was one of those things where... She knew that she would have no support. 
that she had one uh, when she was like 16, got accident, um, accidentally got pregnant in high school, and it was one of those things. Mom kind of pushed her into it. Sec- the second one comes along. She no- she's going to have no support from the dad. She's going to have no support from anybody else. You know, her friends can do so much. She struggled with it. She struggled with it and then made a decision that she felt was right for her. And so because now if she and and uh, if that if laws were in place restricting that, that would have affected her materially. It wouldn't have affected the person on the street that didn't want an abortion. Well, but, you know, now I'm not going to get into the social issues of this because right. they're that's beyond, you know, that's beyond the scope of the, beyond the scope of this. Uh, just suffice it to say that. You know, when you're that you've highlighted one of the schisms in the Republican Party. Right. You have a group of conservatives who go, we don't care if you have a fiscal conservatives. If you want an abortion, that's your business. It should be between you and the doctor. Right. The libertarians have that view. But now the people that have a lot of the power and also a lot of the money are the Christian conservatives. So suddenly, if you take that position of, well, we're going to eliminate all abortions, you've made one-third of the party happy, let's say that uh, my numbers might be off, you've made a, uh, one group happy, but you've also alienated two other groups. Right. But, and if you're a libertarian where you go, well, let's appeal to the broadest base we can, let's start taxing things, let's focus on the economy and get people out of the bedroom, then you've alienated one of the most powerful uh, uh, prop things of the Republican Party. It's a Gordian knot that the, uh, the Republicans are having to deal with right now, and I think that after this next break, um, what I'd like to hear from you is sort of how are you going to square that circle? Because the division has only been getting worse. And yes, as that, evidenced by the, the two um, meetings that you cited where they basically threw out the new guard to satisfy the old guard. And yes. I think that the, and the, Republic, and the Democrats had a hard time with that back in the, uh, the 70s where you know, their, their interests were dominated, by their, where unions were dominating the, the Democratic Party. And I'm not saying I'm not coming out as saying anti-union, but I think that there needs to be a balance struck because union interests aren't always the same as environmental interests, and environmental interests yep. aren't always the same as energy interests. Like, well, I, I will balance that. Well, when we get back after the break, we're going to take one here uh, pretty quick. Um, I'm going to tell you exactly how the how the Democrats fixed it, and I have my own solution for the Republicans, and I think you and I will agree that this is how the Republicans should handle it. I'll you're, be interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, this is a. Uh, you're listening to Doc and Lefty. I am Doc. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in tonight. We're here every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. to hopefully to enlighten you. Uh, we are on webcast1live.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back after a brief commercial break. This is Doc with Doc and Lefty. We're talking about the giant schism in the Iowa Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party in general, and in particular the Iowa Republican Party. Yes. Now, now, Blake brings up a very good point, and that is um, the the Democrats had this problem in the 70s. And the Democrats, for a very short period of time, became very practical. After they elected Jimmy Carter, and then Carter got stomped, Mondale got stomped, and they had 12 years of Republican presidential leadership and a massive switch to the Republican Party of, of most voter rolls. Yep. They got smart, and they said, Whoever brings most money to the table is the person that gets the biggest voice. That's what basically happened. Now, you know, um, unions brought a lot of money, so they try to keep them in, in line. Uh, environmentalists brought a lot of money, so they try to get everything there in line. Um, gay rights activists really brought a lot of money. 
So they were able to, in fact, the gay rights activists, you could kind of compare them to the libertarians currently because they were the foot soldiers of the Democratic Party for a long, long time. They didn't give, as far as money, huge huge uh, amounts, but they had a, such a, a, a staunch uh, and hardworking core group of, of people trying to elect Democrats were, that were, uh, you know, friendly to gays. I mean, that's that's really what I saw from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Right. I mean, I would, I kind of, I see where you're going with this, and I just, I kind of wonder. <laughs> well, that's how they got out of the 70s. I'm not necessarily saying that's what they're doing today. Well, well what I'm, what I'm kind of suggesting, I mean, what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the, that there were a lot of powerful interest groups on the Democratic Party, and Boy, I mean, you put up you put up folks like Greenpeace up against uh, uh, Exxon, and I just don't see the the the, competent, the comparison there. I mean, like the environmental movement has been ridiculed and doubted and called a fraud for year for decades, and that hurts so, fundraising. So it doesn't hurt fundraising that much. I mean, look at where they get their money. I mean, you got an entire generation in Europe brainwashed about really how things are made, where things come from. I mean, for crying out loud, they think that, uh, you know, spaghetti comes from trees. I mean, really, that's where, I mean, there's such a disconnect between the more urban versus the more rural. And it, one of the things that happened, it's not part of the issue today, but right. the bottom line is, is you know, Europe, Europeans give a ton of money for these supposed green projects that really all they do is wind up not helping their environment and taxing everybody to death. Um, um, Germany is doing pretty well with its green projects. Well, but the Germans have that kind of engineering and expertise, and you know it's, it's making it's created a lot of jobs. It's really helped them out of the, the financial crisis. But it, anyway, that I mean that's more of a specific policy thing. I guess my issue is Democrats have never have never up until more recently. I would say I would suggest to you that the the money shift happened in the Democratic Party only after Bill Clinton. Only after Bill Clinton appointed Robert Rubin, a former Goldman Sachs CEO, and started working both sides of the street. The Democrats have always had a money disadvantage to the Republicans because the Republicans were the party of big business. You have the, the, the environmental well, groups. Well, the, now, that's, that's pretty popular stuff that they teach over at Drake University. But I can tell you that whoever gets the most money has ebbed and flowed over my lifetime. Um, uh, when uh, Ford was running against Carter, Carter raised more money. Right, he was the incumbent when Ford. Oh, when Ford did. When, when Ford, Ford did. was running for re-election, he raised more money. Reagan raised more money than Carter. When Bush lost, Clinton raised more money than Bush. So both parties are capable of, of generating millions of dollars for their for their runs. What I'm talking about is the specific issue was how do you. How did the Republic, how did the Democratic Party resolve who has the bigger voice? And that's basically how they resolved it. Now, the, what we're going to get to next here is um, what I think the Republican Party ought to do. What you ought to do is focus on jobs. You need to focus on the economy. You need to focus on reforming welfare. You need to basically take the contract with America that Newt Gingrich had and get everybody on board. When you get everybody on board going, yeah, everything's a lot better, then you can start focusing on the social issues. You can't keep driving away people that want to vote for you. 
when you're driving down the street and you see that one uh, truck with the aborted baby on the side of it, I'm a pro-lifer. I'm believing in, you know, life is sacred from the cradle to the grave. And I'm going to tell you right off the top, that's an offensive poster. Now, what if you're somebody who's, you know, doesn't really care one way or another about abortion and you see that poster? Suddenly you're going to think, oh, my God, I got my kids in the back and they're seeing a dead baby. Come on. Let's use some reason here. This is why I say I think that the Republican message is fine. If that's what you believe, say it. Defend it. Believe it. But you can't offend people. You can't make people afraid. That was what the problem with Mitt Romney. He couldn't decide what he wanted to do. One minute he was a liberal, next minute he was a moderate, next minute he was a conservative. You can't do that. You have to say, this is what our platform is. You can't be everything to every man. But you can get out there and say, to the things that are important to everybody, here's our plan. Because let's admit it, most people don't care about, especially young people, don't care about the issue of gay marriage. Most people, I shouldn't say most people, many people believe in the right to life. But that isn't what they're going to vote for, right? If you come down to, I have a Democrat who's completely socialist, but yet he believes in right to life, that isn't going to determine how somebody will vote for him. It's the other issues that are much more important, particularly with bad economy. And I think that you can agree with that. Well, I mean, not not the policy statements, but you can agree, I think, with the strategy. But, well, from a from a political science standpoint, the strategy, I guess, makes sense. But I I think that I don't feel like the Republican Party has been that muddled in its message or its delivery. They've said what they wanted to say, and they and they said it as clearly as they possibly could. And I think that you saw between 2010 and now, um, after the uh, uh, revolt away from from Obama in that midterm election, you saw what Demo- what Republican president or what Republican governors and Republican legislatures around the country wanted to do. They wanted to bust unions, they wanted to outlaw abortion, and they wanted to try to ban gay marriage. And that was the focus in those two years. Not so much on the gay marriage stuff, but you saw it around around the country. You saw these different pieces of legislation. You you had you had these Republican governors running on like Scott like a uh, Walker in Wisconsin ran on the platform of fiscal responsibility, getting the house in order, um, creating jobs, jobs, jobs. And the first thing he did, and he didn't mention anything about the public sector union. The first thing he did was try and bust that union up. You had uh, guys, you had the governor in Michigan do virtually the same thing. You had the governors in Arkansas and Mississippi go on the record and say, "We finally done it. We finally outlawed abortion." Now, and and you saw. You saw a candidate in Mitt Romney say those exact mimic that exact same stuff. Say that exact same stuff that he would, you know, he would get. He was on board with Mike Huckabee's def, uh, right to or, uh, uh, personhood amendment. He was on board with the immigration policy in Arizona. He was on board with all these extra extremely conservative policies, and he lost by six million votes well, be, but- in a national election because the a majority of the people in the country object to that message. Not the delivery to that message. Well, but that's but that's basically all he he talked about. I mean, that's all you heard that he talked about. He didn't talk. You know, he's up there trying to talk about jobs, and then says corporations are people, my friend. How do you? I mean, even though that's true, as a lawyer, you know that's true. 
How do you recover from that? You don't, and it's it's true because of a of a really old obscure Supreme Court case that interpreted it that way. There is an amendment in the Iowa House in the uh, that's been it's either being crafted or it's about to be introduced in the Iowa legislature, where um, it's and it go and to be extended out into the country at large and and proposed to the federal constitution that the twentieth amendment of the uh, federal constitution, the definition that corporate that only natural people, natural-born human beings can be considered as persons. Corporations aren't persons, and money isn't speech. I have a problem with that, not necessarily the corporations being people, because we've well, cre- they're a legal entity. They yeah. have to be something. But, you know, the part of, the, part of my thing with this is the, all the examples you pointed out, these people didn't start out saying those things. They got elected first and then said those things. Mitt Romney wasn't elected yet, and he went out and said those things. The other thing is, is, is we've talked a lot about this with Mitt Romney. 11 million conservatives sat home because, oh, my God, you're going to vote for Mitt Romney? There's no way he was conservative. He's not even a fiscal conservative. He's not really a social conservative. He's a moderate at best and a liberal at worst. Do they think he was worse than Obama, though? Because they hate Obama. Well, but you see, and then we get back to the purists. The purists say, well, he's not pure enough for me. I'm not going to vote for him. That's really what the problem, so, the problem is. So did I, I didn't hear you so, just I didn't hear you just suggest that conservatives should fool people into voting for them and then establish no, I think all this they, stuff I think later. They need to, I think they need to focus on the things that will affect the most people. I mean, you said it yourself. Yep. Most people aren't going to have an abortion. All right? So No, I didn't I'm, say that. I didn't say that. I, I didn't say most people aren't going to have one. What I said was a policy. That's not what I said. Hold on. Can't you just let it go just, just one time? I mean, you, you even said the abortions are not going to – the abortion laws are not going to affect people who have abortions. No, I said they're not going to affect the people who won't have one anyway. That's what I said. This is the problem, ladies and gentlemen, with having a show with a lawyer. <laughs> so, I have a better memory, apparently. So, well, no, I just but – the, but my point is yeah. that when – you know, you don't lead with that. You lead with things that more people are going to be relating to. More people are going to relate to jobs, keeping their houses, economy. You don't hear you don't hear President Obama leading out there. Hi, I'm going to protect abortion for everybody. Hi, we're going to have you know we're going to root for gay marriage, right? He didn't pull that that well, out of his he, hat until he until it looked like he was getting desperate. He put he he put it in a State of the Union address. I mean, when. This time. Yeah, this time. No, after, no, I know. When? After he was elected. Right. That's my point. Now, we all know. Well, the inaugurations We all know Obama's been a job killer. And after the break, we're going to discuss how sequestration is going to affect jobs in the military. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll be back right after the break. This is Doc with Doc and Lefty. We're uh, approaching the final minutes of our show. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about sequestration. Am I even pronouncing that right? I think so. All right. And uh, what basically that is is Congress said, well, we're just not going to renew certain monies, and uh, the Pentagon has to figure out a way to make the budget meet. Is is that pretty accurate? Is that yep. how you understand it? Well, and other things. Cuts to education, other programs too, but the, yes. the Pentagon will take a gigantic chunk of it because it has a gigantic chunk of the budget. Yes. Not nearly as much as social programs, but still a lot. Oh, I don't even get a rise out of him with that, right? He Rad. said that I got to let things go. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway, 
basically what has happened is $750,000 or 750,000 jobs are lost. Um, we have a carrier that's been, you know, set aside. And the problem is, is that kind of ripple is really going to tell. Now, you don't want people losing jobs. However, what we've essentially done is create this gigantic social, wef- social wef- welfare program. You know, food stamps are at an all-time high. Unemployment's at an all-time high. I mean, the benefits, paying out the benefits mm-hmm. and all that. Um, you have more people than ever on disability. And you cut 750,000 jobs of people that were working, not just the person down at the DMV who, you know, is shuffling papers and trying to work with the public, but people that are actually putting their lives on the line, getting up every day working, all right, um, putting in long hours for not very good pay, but it's something they love, and suddenly you're going to cut 750,000 people. You know, yep. what, what we've essentially done is take people that work and fire them and give the money that we should be giving to them to people that are staying home. And but that won't working. happen, though. Under, the, under sequestration, that won't happen. I mean, there, no money gets reallocated back into the, into, the, uh, um, into the entitlement programs at all. It's just cut from the budget. I get the, that. The, but, folks, the folks that are... But, but, but what, what we've done is created this giant monster of social programs, and now we're cutting the people that actually work. See my point? You know, here's my... I, I was listening to this. I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, we all we all know that there's got to be... That there there has to be some sort of a reform to Medicare. There has to be. Because folks who pay in, like what, I think the figures from a couple of years ago, you, you pay in about $122,000 if you if you retired back in like 2010 for nearly $400,000 worth of benefits, like one to three, the payout. Yeah. Why why can't we have means testing, Doc? Why why is that? That's a conservative idea that I feel like the Democrats aren't really even listening to. If you make a crap load of money, why can't you be means tested for Medicare benefits? I don't get it. Why can't you voluntarily say, "Look, I'm a Republican or I'm a I'm a Democrat or whoever, and I've made a boatload of cash throughout my lifetime. I don't I don't need." I mean, well, $2,000 well, a month in Medicare benefits is a drop in the bucket. Well, now, I'm all for that, except you've already paid money into the system. You've already paid money into that, right? You if should you at volu- least get your money back out. If you voluntarily opt, if you voluntarily opt out, who cares? It's like, it's like, it's like paying uh, for years and years and years of health insurance, never getting sick, and then canceling your policy. You've paid into that casualty pool for years and years and years and years, and then you can't, you cancel your policy and move on to the next thing or whatever. Well, but see, that's the issue. You're not allowed to say, "Well, hold on, I don't want Medicare anymore. I'm going to cancel my policy." Exactly. You're, you have to once you hit a certain age, you have to be in Medicare. I feel like there should be means testing. You should be able to voluntarily opt out if you want to at, after you get to be a certain age. Absolutely, but you should also be able to opt out paying into it. See what I'm saying? I mean, your your example of, well, you know, I had life insurance for so long and now I don't need it, and I'm going to stop paying into it, is great. Stop paying into it. But the problem is, is you're required to pay into it Mm -hmm. up until, what, you're 65, or unless something terrible happens to you. And then, after that, you have to be in Medicare. I agree, you got to have means testing for a lot of stuff. Medicaid, um, disability. I think it should be much more difficult to get disability. I think that you got to have means testing for Medicare, but at the same time, you should have the option to opt out. I don't want to be in Medicare. I don't. I should be able to opt out of that. Just like your example, I want to get rid of, or I don't need my insurance anymore. 
I'm going to get rid of it and not pay in any longer. I mean, this is like being forced to pay in, and then at the end you get all kinds of benefits back. I mean, it's a Ponzi scheme is what it is, you know? So I don't think it should be that, but I do agree it should be means tested. Right. All right, great. See, I don't know what I was – you know what I was thinking. You know what distracted me? Hmm. I was trying to read Chris's response because she's really bright, and I like how she speaks. Mm-hmm. So I got distracted. It's my fault. Now, don't get me wrong. You're you're paying it. You're paying a tax on something that goes into a general uh, coffer and gets paid out. If you pay in yes. to Medicare, you're. St- I mean, it's 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 like a it's it's a tax. It's like an insurance program, right? However, if you if you are vol- if you voluntarily opt out before a certain date with your four hundred one k. Or with your Roth IRA, you pay a gigantic penalty. I feel like the incentive to maintain that tax to support the program, which is necessary for a lot of people, mm-hmm. a lot of people, should be so that the incentive should be on that side. However, when you get to be a certain age, when you're Warren Buffett, and you're saying, you know, I've paid Medi- I paid Medicare taxes my entire life, but I don't need them. So Absolutely. this is so that's so that's my sort of. That's my contribution. A lot of yep. folks don't give charitable contributions and take the standard deduction because the standard deduction is higher on their taxes every single year. Your contribu- if you get to a certain point where you have the means to be able to take care of yourself in your old age throughout all your health problems and you want to, and you want to voluntarily say, look, folks, this is my charitable contribution to the country. I've paid in all these years. I don't, I'm not going to take anything back out for myself. There you go. I, I agree. I don't, have, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, but I, you know, I don't have a problem if you want to voluntarily surrender it. But I don't think we should be forced to do this. I would be fine with the Social Security program if it, if it was under exactly the same rules as what it was set up for widows and orphans, have the same percentage of people that were going to live till the age of sixty-five, and not have it taxed. You know, uh, that's that's my thing. And you know, how did we get off that from sequestration? I don't want to talk about sequestration because I mean it's the it's really the recalcitrants that Republicans fault anyway. How's that? They set it up. They refuse they refuse to do any sort of budget negotiations at the end of the year. They set up the, the automatic cuts and the debt ceiling stuff. They would they refuse to come to any sort of agreement on that. Now they kick the can down the road at the end of this month and well, but, we're staring but sequestration. But part of the problem the is is when President Obama comes and says, well, "Hold on, you're going to have to have a tax hike," and when we've already had the largest tax hike in history. You know, I think the Republicans should say, we've already had a tax hike, now it's time for, for spending cuts. If President Obama isn't going to come in and go, well, listen, we need spending cuts, you know, then, you know, what's he's, the point of, what's the point reduced, of negotiation? He, he's, he's had the greatest reduction in uh, government jobs than, as any other president. So, yeah. I, mean, what, I mean, what else do you want him to do? You know, start kicking people out in the street? Well, the, the problem is, the original point is the military and what, what, how that's going to impact. Right. You're going to have a – it isn't just the 750,000 jobs. Mm-hmm. It's the people that maintain the ships. It's the people that you know, work in the shipyards. It's the people that, that package the food, grow the food. It's going to be a giant ripple effect. It, right. it, it's going to be worse than even the effect from um, GM or Chrysler, yet you know, they're not getting the help that they need. You know? well, well, it's, it's be- well, well, we've kind of we've talked a little too much. This is – 
Blake and I haven't been at each other for a while. We, we haven't. No. We have because we've been doing so well with guests and stuff. We, we had, have been. We had two weeks in a row where he didn't he didn't so, have any guests, and that just it, it turns people loose. It does. It it turn it turns everyone loose. Um, so the next thing we're going to talk about real quick is the ammunition shortage. Apparently, all the all the people like you were talking about, like in Mississippi, they're banning uh, abortions. Colorado, they're banning guns. You know, uh, Magpul, which is a giant gun manufacturer, is, is leaving the state. Other uh, states have, have enacted similar uh, legislation like New York. And what that what it, that, that has done is created a giant run on ammunition. Mm-hmm. Um, our friend Mike Spore uh, at JLM Gun Shop, I went down there to pick up some 9 mil. He'd sold 38 boxes, he told me, in less than three hours. So he had his allotment was 38 boxes, and it was done. Um, his shelves that normally were filled with ammunition is all gone. And the AR-15 assault rifle, uh, which is a popular uh, rifle that the left likes to target, um, has gone in the last three months from $995 to $1,995. And he can't keep it on the shelf. So, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, the ammunition is getting really short. Uh, pretty soon the only people that's going to be manufacturing ammunition are the Russians. And... They're going to be start just like drugs. It's going to turn into a situation where where drugs are rampant and the Mexicans are killing each other for the drug uh, lines. It's going to be the same thing with ammunition. So what what do you have to say about that? About about uh, the lack people, of ammunition. People killing each other to get bullets. Yeah. I think what are they killing get... each other with? <laughs> well, but <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be a waste of bullets? Well, it would, but you understand my point. I mean, you know, he's creating this this market, and at some point, he's going to start creating a black market if he continues to ban weapons. He hasn't banned any weapons, though. No, he has not, but other lefties have. Well, here's, you know? I mean, the issue. I mean, just like, I mean, just like, that's what I was saying. Right. Just like Mississippi. Here's the here's the issue with um, the uh, the legislation. First of all, the states have been so freaked out by what's been happening around the country with us with the gun violence and and uh and sort of like a little bit of a spike and you see these spikes every once in a while throughout throughout the uh, uh the history of this country where you be relatively quiet and then it'll spike for a little while and they're getting so freaked out that they feel like they need to do something especially after a bunch of kindergarten kids get shot so they're taking they're taking it on themselves because just like with immigration just like with um, the fiscal mess, just like with union um, uh, reform and, and fair pay, the federal government has made itself completely incapable of handling large pieces of legislation that res- that uh, it really is in its purview. I mean, if we're going to have a second amendment to the federal constitution, it's the federal constitution's prerogative to deal with the regulations related to that amendment. Just like with the FAA and the first, or the the uh, um, FAA, good grief, the uh, um, the FCC and the First Amendment, the federal government needs to act here because we can't have 50 different gun rules. If you say say Iowa has this really, and that was the, one of the one of the good points that uh, that the Republicans make is that uh, Republican folks in Iowa make is that if Iowa goes, you know, really, really hyper strict on gun legislation and Missouri doesn't, people make a run for the border and the guns come in over the border anyway. And that bogs down the uh, the criminal justice system and, and so on and so forth. So the federal government needs to get its act together 
and take care of this gun legislation. It's been going. It's been the the reforms have been fairly modest so far, but it needs to figure out something because I feel like the runs that you're talking about, the shortages that you're talking about, because people are freaking out over what state legislatures are doing, that the state legislature should cool it and let the federal government do something and maybe make this whole, and maybe even the whole thing out. That's what the federal government's there for. All right. So you think this the the if there are going to be modifications to the Second Amendment. It is a, uh, it's not a Tenth Amendment issue, but a federal. It a federal absolutely has issue. to be. It, ha- it yeah. absolutely has to be, because the, what, because the Tenth Amendment only talks about powers that weren't enumerated in the Constitution or reserved to the states. The Second Amendment, as conservatives are very, very willing to tell you, is an enumerated right expressly provided for in the Constitution. And so, if the federal and and the federal government has uh, has prerogative over that, in my opinion, I'm not a you Supreme bet. Court justice. You bet. Well, that's it for today's show. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We want to thank our sponsors. Well, I want to thank uh, Frank, our producer, for producing this segment. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You know you know who's listening tonight? Our friend Brad's on was that listening. Oh, well, great. Yep. And then Hi, our, Brad. Yeah, and our friend Tim was listening and my mother and all kinds of people. Did your mom listen to this? I have no idea. Oh, you got to call her. Tell her to listen. In. She pro- she probably is driving home from work. She drive. She's got like a forty five minute drive in rush hour traffic home okay. uh, each day between six and well, maybe she she might be just getting home at six o'clock. And mm-hmm. if I was getting if I was in the car for nearly an hour every single day co- driving home from Shakopee to Minneapolis, I might listen to my son babble about politics. I'm oh, just not going to do all it. Right. All right. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, from uh, 6 to 7 p.m. on webcast1live.com. I am very hopeful that we can get uh, maybe A.J. Spiker, Steve Beerfield, somebody to show up. Don't forget this weekend to celebrate life. It's over at, uh, uh, it's with Mike Huckabee. You can look on the Iowa GOP website. Lefty and I will be there. We'll bring you a report next week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Good evening.